0: morning. This is Greg Roman reporting on WWDB 860 AM with Middle East Forum in the Morning. Every week we come to you with stories coming from the region talking to you about ways in which the ailments of the Middle East are affecting you here in Philadelphia or around the rest of the world. We have an exciting program this morning. First, with the President of the Middle East Forum, Mr. Daniel Pipes, who will be updating us on the latest from London in the Tommy Robinson case, Abraham Sofer, who will be reporting to us about Israel-Iran relations, Jonathan Spire, fellow at the Middle East Forum, talking about Syria, and wrapping up with Jim Hansen on President Trump's latest Israel strategy and Iran's latest threats against Israel. Now, I'd like to bring us our first guest on our inaugural broadcast, Mr. Daniel Pipes a scholar who has been focusing on the Middle East for the past 50 years, resident of Philadelphia, and someone that I call my colleague and my friend. Good morning, Daniel. Good morning, Greg. So what can you tell us about the latest going on in London?
1: It's quite extraordinary, uh, the vindication of those of us who said that uh, Tommy Robinson, the activist who is concerned about Islamism, uh, he's been freed on bail. After being thrown into jail, uh, which is what uh, you and I and many others worked for.
0: And for our audience who's not familiar with the Robinson case, can you give us a little bit of background.
1: Tommy Robinson is a young man who has been for some years now uh, working on the issue of Islam in, and Islamism in uh, in Great Britain. Uh, he comes from working class background from a town called. Lubin, uh, Lubin? <laughs> anyway, uh, he he has been very active and he's been constantly in trouble with the law. Uh, he was outside a courtroom telling about the proceedings when he was thrown in jail after a very abrupt process that did not follow normal procedures. And, uh, he's been in jail now for a month and a bit. Uh, we at the Middle East Forum have been active in trying to get him released on bail, and that has now just happened. Uh, the, the highest, the, the highest, uh, judge in the land, uh, wrote the, wrote the decision about this. It's quite extraordinary, uh, saying that this was, uh, a, a, a decision to throw him in jail that was full of mistakes. And so he's now out on bail. And the proceedings, let's hope, will be on a more just basis.
0: Many of our critics say that this is not about free speech, not about freedom of the press, but they bring up the issue that this was a violation of British law. And, of course, with this appeal this morning, we can see that the prejudice of the judge in his involvement with this and having the highest court in the land, as you said, with the highest judge in the land, proved all of those critics nary. What do you think this has in terms of implications for the discussion of Islam and Western liberal democracies?
1: Well, I don't know about Western liberal democracies as a whole, but for Great Britain, it's very important, I think, because it establishes uh, that the government cannot simply uh, ignore the growing concerns of the citizenry about a totalitarian ideology called Islamism that uh, worries about it, Uh, speaking out against it are legitimate activities. And that, by and large, has not been possible in the U.K. The U.K. has been the worst country uh, in, in
0: this respect. And as an organization, the Middle East Forum has taken up this case not as its first, but as one amongst dozens. What's the history of the Middle East Forum's involvement in protecting the public discussion of Islamism in the West?
1: A bit over a decade ago, we started something called the Legal Project Uh, And although it has a very broad name, it has a very specific purpose, which is to help those who are unjustly targeted by the authorities, uh, put in jail or fined or whatever else it might be, because they discuss law. Uh, We don't have a point of view on what they should say. We just say that they must be able to talk about this all-important topic without getting uh, penalized, uh, jailed, or fined. And uh, we have had, over the years, I would estimate some 50 cases, where the authorities have misbehaved and where we have come to the defense of those who are talking about Islam. And we don't have to agree with what they're saying. I I don't know that I agree with everything Tommy Robinson says. It's just he has the right to say it.
0: Now, the implications here are present, just as you articulated them regarding the case in the UK, but we also, taking a pivot to Eastern Europe, see that there's a backlash in the rise of uh, illegal migrants entering Eastern Europe right now, making their way through it and going into France, uh, Belgium, the Netherlands, Germany, Sweden. How is Eastern Europe dealing with this rise of Islamism on the continent?
1: By and large, Eastern, Eastern Europe, by which I mean the part of Europe that was under Soviet control for 45 years after World War II, from about 1945 to 1990, uh, Eastern Europe in general is far more grounded on the issues of uh, Islamism and related topics. Uh, They see this for the problem it is in a way that Western Europe does not. It's quite, quite extraordinary. The distinction is huge. Eastern Europeans, those who went through the Cold War on the Soviet side, are far more grounded and realistic about the threat of Islamism.
0: And what do you think Western Europe can learn from their Eastern European counterparts? Uh,
1: They can learn that this is a threat to the Western way of life, uh, which somehow, especially in Britain, is a fact that uh, seems to be overlooked by most of the population. Now, I'd add that uh, the numbers who are worried about Islamism are growing, growing substantially over time. But still, the government's are almost universally uh, not worried. We've seen some changes in the last half year, starting with Austria in December and then Italy in June. Uh, But by and large, the governments of Western Europe are still oblivious to the threat of Islamism.
0: Now we've started seeing the reaction of Western European peoples starting to vote with their feet and also in the ballots by looking at the evidence of the rise of the populist government in Italy. I think actually the prime minister just met with President Trump this week. How can you ascribe the success of the League, the party which has taken the interior ministry in Italy as a result of this rising amount of migrant rates and the rising amount of Islamism in Italy itself? And what kind of policies is the League and, and its leadership introducing in Italy to combat this migrant flow?
1: Well, Italy, has, Italy Spain, and Greece are the front-line states in the sense that the migrants start there and then they move on elsewhere. They don't go by plane. They go by foot or by ship, overwhelming by, by boat. Uh, the Italian government has decided to stop this immigration and has rather dramatically rejected the uh, incoming migrants, some of them, a number of them, to Spain. Um, But that's the easy part. Not taking in more migrants is not so difficult. The tough part is what you do with those who are already there. Salvini, Mario Salvini, the interior minister, and one of the two leading figures in the government, has said he plans to expel 500,000 illegal migrants in Italy in five years, 100,000 a year. I'm going to watch very closely to see how that happens because it's going to be very difficult. How is he going to expel them? Who's going to take them? Um, The record shows that it's exceedingly difficult to expel migrants who are already there against their wishes. If they're willing to go, fine, but if they're not, it will be very difficult. So this is really an experiment that is starting in
0: You mentioned Greece, and Greece has been really one of the main influx uh, countries in terms of refugees and migrants that have been coming from Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, other Middle Eastern countries, mostly by way of Turkey. And in Turkey, we also just had a recent election with uh, maybe a sham election is the better way to describe it, but with uh, President Recep Tayyip Erdogan taking power. How is Turkey's new consolidated power under Erdogan? And, and you've made the point in the past that it's nothing new. It's just a veneer in terms of a new constitution and a new election. What's Erdogan's position in terms of his important uh, dealing with the rise of, of migrant rates going into Europe and also his influence on Europe itself? Uh, just a few years ago, Turkey was hoping to join the European Union.
1: Well, that hope is long gone. Uh, Erdogan has indicated, he's no longer interested in joining the EU. He sees the migrants, particularly those coming from Syria, as a vehicle to uh, threaten the European countries. Uh, he can release the valve and they start moving again. Uh, I don't know if that's actually the case, because since 2015, when over a million migrants went, and many of them through Turkey, to Europe, uh, the Europeans have clamped down. And so I'm inclined to think that if he does release the valve, then many of these migrants will be stuck on islands, uh, Greek islands near Turkey. Uh, they're ready. Many of them are full of migrants. And, and then when they realize they're not actually getting to Germany and Sweden, they will stop going. Uh, but it's a very delicate game. The other two countries in the, forefront of this, namely Morocco and Libya, are not playing that kind of game. The Libyans are somewhat anarchic, the Moroccans are much more cautious, but Erdogan is the one, president of Turkey, who is using this as a vehicle to pressure the, the, the Europeans as a whole, the Germans in particular, to do his bidding.
0: Now, outside of the migrant issue, we've also seen Turkey under Erdogan push other pressure points related to European security, whether it be NATO, whether it be America's Middle East allies that may not necessarily have any uh, skin in the game as it relates to Europe. But we've seen even Erdogan now invade uh, Syria, taking on a uh, Kurdish canton and kicking out the forces there that were once uh, not necessarily rebelling against Assad, but kicking out forces that were anathema to their own nationalist values. What kind of threat does Erdogan pose to the West? Erdogan is
1: a much more subtle threat to the West than Iran. The Iranians are cra- the, Iranians are, the R- Iranian leadership is crazy Islamist. The Turkish leadership is sober Islamist. Or, as I call it, the Iranians are Islamism 1.0, and the Turks are 2.0. Much more clever, and much more long-term. For example, focus on economic growth for many years, in the way the Iranians never were. Uh, I see the Iranian revolution coming to an end before too long. It's on its last legs, and then Turkey will emerge as the great Islamist uh, threat to the West, whether it be in releasing refugees or in uh, using military force, uh, for example, around the island of Cyprus, or uh, threatening to... Get involved more actively in the politics where of countries in, in Europe like Germany and Belgium where there are many Turks. Uh, I, I think Turkey is going to emerge as the number one Islamist threat to Europe and more broadly to the West.
0: And Daniel, we only have a minute left. So what kind of message would you like to uh, send to our listeners on the Middle East Forum's inaugural radio broadcast? What do you think they should be doing in terms of listening to us, reading us, what, what can they learn from our, our content?
1: Well, I meant to say before we plunged into the initial topic, how delighted I am that you've taken the Middle East Forum to a new format, namely radio. Uh, it's great. Thank you. I wish you well. I wish you uh, long, uh, you know, many years of, of, of activity. Uh, the The most important thing for our American listeners is to be vigilant, to understand the nature of Islamism, and to fight it. And this means uh, Muslims and non-Muslims joining together to fight against the new totalitarianism.
0: Thank you very much, Mr. Pipes, and I hope you have a great day. Thank you. That was Daniel Pipes, president of the Middle East Forum and the founder of the organization, one that promotes American interests in the Middle East and protects Western values from threats emanating from that region. After our break, we'll be back with Dr. Abraham Sofer speaking about a nuclear Iran and Israel-Iran relations. This is Greg Roman on the Middle East Forum, WWDB, 860 AM radio. The Middle East Forum promotes American interests in the Middle East and protects Western values from Middle Eastern threats. The Forum sees the region, with its profusion of dictatorships, radical ideologies, existential conflicts, and weapons of mass destruction, as a major source of problems for the United States. Accordingly, we urge bold measures to protect Americans and their allies. Read more at www.meforum.org or check us out on Twitter at M.E. Forum, the Middle East Forum, protecting your interests.
2: Every day, the men and women of the United States Marine Corps demonstrate their commitment to defend the American way of life. Since 1775 For our nation, for us all, the few, the proud, the Marines.
0: Welcome back to Middle East Forum Radio. This is Greg Roman, 1015 and the hour, and we're joined by a guest that I've been waiting to interview for weeks as we've been planning this inaugural broadcast. We're joined by Dr. Abraham Sofer, a former district judge at the United States District Court for the Southern District of New York, and then a legal advisor to the United States State Department. After resigning from the State Department, he became the George P. Schultz Senior Fellow in Foreign Policy and National Security at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. Sofer's work focuses on the power over war within the U.S. government and on issues related to international law, terrorism, diplomacy, and national security. Mr. Sofer, or should I say Judge Sofer, welcome to the program.
3: Just say Abe and good morning, Greg.
0: Abe, how are you today? Fine. So we're going to get right into it. How do you see President Trump moving forward with the JCPOA? Do you see a viable deal at the end of this that leaves both Iran and the U.S. satisfied?
3: It's possible. Um, I, I think you have to remember what's happened in the past. People just forget the past all over, over and over again. Uh, We had a deal like this in 79 where we lifted sanctions in exchange for their release of our hostages in Iran. And that deal, which was limited to uh, economic sanctions and, and their release of our hostages, did not cover Iranian support for terrorism, interventions, nuclear program, missiles, etc. So it didn't work. Iran went ahead and thought they had uh, essentially the political deal that they could go ahead and do what they wanted as long as they released the uh, hostages. But, of course, uh, eventually the U.S. had to do something to stop them when they started mining the Gulf and shooting rockets at um, U.S. flagships and harbors. So we started reimposing sanctions. Reagan did that. Uh So that's the first thing. It's it's very clear this deal, JCPOA, was doomed from the start because of its lack of coverage.
0: Why do you think the Obama administration put so much political stock in the passing of this, even hand-wringing Democrats that were opposed to the deal, threatening them with their election campaigns if they didn't get behind it, or at least wait until the Obama administration was able to get a significant enough minority to block any congressional action on this?
3: You remember, it's not a deal in the sense that any House of the Congress or anyone else approved this deal. This deal did not have the support of a majority of anyone in the House or the Senate. The president pulled off a really clever trick to get it approved just because he has the power to revoke sanctions in the UN. And they did revoke these four very important sanctions. So the, the, what happened, Greg, was there, were, there was a long period where we imposed unilateral sanctions on Iran, and they didn't work. Germany ignored them. And a lot of other countries ignored them. And they built up their nuclear program. They built up all their other programs. Incidentally, North Korea was doing the same thing at the same time and cooperating together. And eventually, Condi Rice, to her credit, uh, made the deal that she would join the negotiation with Iran if uh, the Europeans agreed to impose these four resolution sanctions, an oil embargo that was supported by the world. And that's what brought Iran to the table. So you have to think about that unilateral us sanctions will hurt Iran, but not if the not if the Europeans are totally committed. To continuing the economic support of Iran. This is going to be much tougher to uh, put pressure on Iran uh, than it was when all the European nations and the Security Council supported us.
0: If we look at the last time that the U.S. put sanctions on a major world power, I think back to the Clinton administration when China was stealing a lot of American intellectual property. America put sanctions on the Chinese economy and Europe ignored it or actually asked for waivers or offered buyouts to companies that were still doing business with Chinese entity that were under U.S. sanctions. If the sanctions don't end up biting on Iran, and and right now I I find that hard to believe, we see Iran's economy in a tailspin, we see protests on the streets, but if the U.S. isn't able to successfully pressure uh, Iran and it's moving in the opposite direction of their nuclear drive, what other options does the United States have available to bring Iran to kneel?
3: Oh, we've got lots of options. Let me remind you of another uh, even more tam, uh, relevant um, historical instance that's not so far away. Reagan imposed sanctions because of the oil pipeline, and it didn't work. We ultimately had to back off because the Europeans all said, no, we're not going to abide by this. Uh, so there's – and you, you got to give Iran time to re to redo all the processes they had before, they were actually using a lot of cash, and they were also and gold um, that, to pay for things, and they were doing um, uh, swaps, um, stuff that they have, um, whether it's oil, especially oil, for in exchange for food, etc. So they have to reinstitute all those methods that they had uh, before they. Uh, before the you know, uh, before the uh, multilateral sanctions were imposed, I mean the president is right. This is a terrible deal. Uh, we need to uh, we need to get the Europeans behind us on missiles, on interventions in foreign countries. But this president is not afraid. He has not made this kind of commitment that Obama had made that he was going to bomb Iran if they went beyond a certain level of enrichment. And Obama knew he was not going to bomb Iran. It was just another bluff by him. And Gates himself, the Secretary of Defense for Obama, said he, he he did not support it. So there was no prospect that they would actually bomb Iran. So they had to make a deal, Greg. Uh, because they did not want to have yet another Syrian uh, line in the sand that had been ignored and that they didn't do anything about.
0: So through their own positions, they were forced into a diplomatic stance they didn't necessarily want to be in. I'm sorry? Due to their own opposition within the cabinet and within the government, they were forced into a position that they may not have necessarily intended on.
3: Right, and I think you know the president really needs to think about does he want to attack Iran if they, let's say, they get desperate economically and they do start to enrich? Now, Does he really want to attack Iran?
0: Now, there, this is a, this
3: there. would be a major war, 80 million people, very talented people. It would completely disrupt the oil production system of the world because they sit right on the gulf there. So there, this is a very serious issue. My own position has been that now that the deal is made, we should work with the Europeans to get them to agree to force Iran to extend the deal. And the Europeans were ready to do that on the missile issue, on the intervention issue, and other issues, but not force Iran to extend the nuclear um, issue uh, into the future indefinitely, I would have started with whatever the Europeans were ready to start with, because those sanctions would have been much more effective. And Iran says they don't ever plan to have a nuclear weapon. Well, we should get them to the table, and we should challenge them on that. If you don't plan to have a nuclear weapon, what the heck do you need to enrich for? Why do you need to enrich beyond uh, 5%, whatever it is? So I, I think the president needs to really think about this. There's still time until October 1st, when the sanctions take effect, there's still time to figure something out that would be very strong, uh, maintain the kind of effort that he started, but at the same time, try to bring the Europeans on board.
0: Now, you alluded to Iran's other malign behavior not being covered under the 1979 agreement, the uh, general de-escalation that took place in the late 80s, and now with the latest version of the JCPOA having been withdrawn. What other tools can the U.S. provide to its allies, not necessarily in Europe, but in the Middle East, that are facing Iranian uh, umbrage and 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 you know the uh, re-arising of a Persian hegemony stretching from the Mediterranean all the way to the Indian Ocean, that may reassure America's Middle East allies in the wake of not just a potential nuclear Iran, but one which is very willing to support insurgencies in countries which have at one time or another been favorable to the United States.
3: Well, I think we're doing quite a bit in in that regard. We're supporting the Saudis in Yemen. Uh, We are supporting our uh, Arab uh, allies with uh, advanced armaments. Um, We should be much tougher about Iran actually shipping arms into these places. Iran seems to have an immunity from physical attack. They uh, Even Israel will attack Iranian soldiers when they're in Syria, but no one has attacked, let's say, a ship that, the, that we know is going to take arms to some country in the Middle East and undermine a government there that's sitting in an Iranian harbor. Somehow we haven't gotten ourselves to the point where we realize that as long as Iran is immune and we will only attack their proxies, Uh, Iran is going to go on being the aggressive, uh, uh, essentially radical regime that it it is. Rouhani cannot control the IRGC. And so just getting along with Rouhani is not enough. You have to deter the militant people in Iran who want to extend Shiism throughout the the Shia crescent. And I think we're doing a lot, but we we could do much more.
0: Only a few years ago, there was a significant riot in Azeri uh, minority-controlled towns or Azeri-populated towns in northeast Iran due to an alleged slur that took place in a Persian-language newspaper. I think that one of the things you see right now, especially after Secretary of State Mike Pompeo's speech two weeks ago, saying that he was advocating for Iranian minorities and different ethnicities that may have felt a little uh, repressed or or very much oppressed. If we talk about uh, Balochistan or Khuzestan or the Azeris or the Kurds, how is the U.S. working with these different minority groups and what plans does it have in place to bolster their human rights protections and to ensure that they're not being subjugated by the Iranian uh, uh, regime's different vestiges, whether it be the IRGC, the besieged militia, or other nefarious groups?
3: Oh, I'm sure they're being subjected to all kinds of pressure, I I doubt that we are uh, closely working with those groups. The Kurds constitute over 10 percent of the Iranian population. They would be a highly disruptive force. Uh, We are at least standing by the Kurds vis-a-vis Turkey. I don't know whether we will. We've always uh, abandoned them before. You're absolutely right. We should should have a a keen strategy and a, 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 a carefully constructed strategy. Uh, to undermine the Iranian government's oppression of these people. But, um, you know, uh, I'm not in the government anymore. I did uh, handle uh, the Iranian uh, negotiation in the Hague for five years, and I made a lot of progress with the Iranians. You can talk to the Iranians. One of the biggest problems we made in the Reagan administration was we tried to do Iran-Contra instead of talking to them in proper diplomatic channels. So we can talk to the Iranians. We have to maintain a broad pressure, not just allowing them to do whatever they want other than the nuclear area. So we've made some very fundamental mistakes. Uh, I agree completely that this agreement is inadequate, but there's no sense in throwing away the time limits that are placed on this agreement uh, that give us seven years to work, uh, work
0: these issues. Abe, hey, thank we're, we're, we're out of time now, but thank you very much for joining the Middle East Forum's first radio broadcast today on Wednesday, hey. August 1st, and, and we really appreciate your time and your insights.
3: Well, good luck. Thanks. It's a pleasure.
0: Thank you very much. Next, we have Dr. Jonathan Spire, who will be joining us after these messages. The intellectual backbone of American Middle East studies has provided a rational excuse for individuals trying to promote an anti-American agenda. We see that those individuals who are in Islamic studies and American Middle East studies programs at some of the most major American universities find themselves justifying the behavior of America's enemies overseas and promoting domestic threats that harm us here at home. If you want to go and learn more about Campus Watch, the Reader's Digest of American Middle East Studies, check us out on Campus Watch at wwwcampus watch
4: Inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs. And it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover keytar from your 80s cover band? goodwill donate stuff create jobs find your nearest donation center at goodwill.org a message from goodwill and the ad council
0: we're back on middle east forum radio wwdb 860 am and i'm really glad that our next guest is going to be joining us for a 15-minute segment talking about one of the hottest regions in the world if not the most regarding syria We have the pleasure of being joined by Dr. Jonathan Spire, the founder and executive director of the Middle East Center for Reporting and Analysis and also a fellow at the Middle East Forum. Jonathan has spent a significant amount of time in Syria and also in the Kurdish areas of Iraq covering this seven-year civil war and also the violence that was associated in the north of the Iraqi country. And also at the same time, he has written extensively about this, almost being a prophet of what happened with the release of his book, uh, the transforming fire, the rise of the Israel-Islamist conflict, I think some eight or nine years ago, and now with his latest book. Jonathan, welcome to the program.
5: Hello, Greg. Yeah, nice to be here.
0: You spent a significant amount of time on the ground in Syria throughout all stages of the conflict. As civil war is approaching its eight-year mark, do you see an end in sight for it?
5: Yeah, uh, in many ways, I think most of us looking at Syria would, uh, would uh, agree that the end game regarding the... Uh, the war between the Assad regime and the largely Sunni Arab rebellion launched against it in mid-2011 is pretty much upon us. Uh, as you're aware, uh, in the last two months, the regime carried out an offensive into the southwest of Syria, into the Daraa and Quneitra provinces, uh, joining the border with Israel. And that offensive is, uh, is in the last stages now. It's very close to the conclusion. And with the conclusion of that offensive, what we will witness is effectively the end of the Syrian rebellion as an independent force. The rebellion still exists in two parts of the country, the northwest and the south, in Idlib province in the northwest and Tanef in the south. But in both those areas, the rebels are basically subcontractors for an outside power for the Americans in Al-Tanef and for the Turks in uh, in Idlib. So it means that the rebellion as an independent force uh, has effectively ceased to be, which means we are now into uh, the end game, so to speak, of the Syrian War, and of course parallel to that, the other war that's been taking place in Syria over the last four years, the war between ISIS and the global coalition to, uh, against ISIS, is also reaching conclusion. ISIS just controlling a few pockets of territory now in the middle Euphrates River Valley. This doesn't mean that peace is coming to Syria, and it doesn't mean that good order is coming to Syria, and it doesn't mean that the status quo ante bellum, so to speak, of March 2011 is coming back. We're into a new series of gains now, in which the key players are outside forces who've come into Syria in the course of the war. The United States itself, Russia, Turkey, uh, Israel, and of course uh, Iran. So there's a a change of mode, a change of game in Syria right now from a process led from below, a rebellion against the regime, into a very complex, multifaceted, diplomatic uh, and uh, strategic contest which is now just opening up on the soil of Syria.
0: So if we can scratch the surface regarding the strategic interests of all these different nation-state actors that are in one way or another involved in Syria, let's go through the list. I'll give you a country and maybe you can tell us what their interest is in Syria Mm -hmm. itself. Let's start with Russia.
5: Russia, uh, of course, came in uh, openly in the war on the end of September 2015, at a time when the regime, Assad regime, was on the brink of defeat. The Russians have saved the regime and brought it to the brink now of victory. What did the Russians want? Well, you know, the alliance between the Assad regime and the Russians or Soviet Union, as was, goes back to the early 70s. That's a long-standing alliance. The Russians wanted to preserve their ally. They've done that. The Russians have two naval bases on the uh, western coast of Syria in Tartus and Latakia. They're the only two bases that the Russian Navy has outside of the soil sort of the former Soviet Union. Russia wanted to preserve those. They have an air base in a place called Khmeimim. They wanted to preserve that. They've done so, of course, and all this stuff. I think Putin also wanted to show that this was Russia, a new Russia, projecting power uh, globally now, not just uh, you know defending Russian assets, so to speak, in Georgia and Ukraine, but able to strike out as an expeditionary force and act uh, globally. So it's the return of Russia as a great power. And I would say also, in addition to that, Russia wanted to showcase some of its weapon systems and, you know, find new customers for its weapon systems and it succeeded in doing that also, both Saudi Arabia and Egypt and of course Turkey, all interested in purchasing Russian weapon systems as a result of the events of the last three years. So that's a long list and interestingly Russia has achieved a great many of the goals outlined uh, on that list.
0: Now, if Russia was providing air cover and naval support, I guess the Iranians were providing paramilitary militias from their Shia stock yeah. in both Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Iraq, and not to mention Hezbollah mm-hmm. and Lebanon. Mm-hmm. What's Iran's interest in this, and, and do they in one way or another contradict Russia's interest?
5: Well, it's an interesting question. Iran is concerned primarily, or was, has been concerned primarily, with the construction of a contiguous line of pro-Iranian states or of Iranian power uh, all the way between the Iraq-Iran border and the Mediterranean Sea and the border with uh, Israel, the Lebanese and Syrian borders with Israel. And, of course, Assad-Syria was an important uh, link in that chain. You know, you can have Hezbollah dominating Lebanon, and you can have the Shia militias and the Dawah party dominating Iraq. But if you lose Syria, you lose the essential link between them. So the Iranians were first and foremost determined to keep that link, and of course they've achieved that. I think they were determined also to sort of build up their own independent political and military power within Syria. In the same way they've done in Lebanon and in Iraq, where they kind of, you know, uh, Iran-associated forces kind of swallow up the state to some degree and become, you know, the key force themselves. And they've they're attempting to do that in Syria. uh, Does it dovetail entirely with the interests of the Russians? No, not entirely. The Russians haven't signed up to be a 100% ally of Iran. They had the common interest of preserving Assad. But you can see from Russian activities uh, in Syria that the Russians are keen to maintain good relations with other powers in the region who are not necessarily aligned with Iran. First and foremost, of course, Israel. Israel would not have been able to carry out the uh, extensive air operations it's carried out over southern Syria without the tacit consent of the Russians who have very extensive air defense systems there in Latakia province, which they did not attempt to activate against Israeli aircraft. So, you know, with with Russia, you have a power that wants to be a power broker. It wants to have good relations with a variety of sides. Let's think also of the permission that Russia gave to Turkey to enter the soil of Syria uh, in late 2016 and then again in January of this year, very much against the will of the Iranians. So the Iranians have a very narrow and clear goal of building up their own Shia Islamist power and through use of proxies. And the Russians want to be a global power and project power globally. And to do that, they want to have good relations also with powers that are opposed to Iran or indeed that are on a collision course with Iran like Israel. So often the interests do overlap, certainly with regard to preserving Assad, but not all the time necessarily when you look at the broader picture.
0: So now that we've covered the pro-Assad forces, what's the stake of the United States in this game? They right now are present in about thirty percent of Syria, yeah. I guess, northeast of the Euphrates River, mm-hmm. and you also mm-hmm. mentioned the area in Tanf. Uh, what's the end game for yeah. America here?
5: Well, this I think is something a debate which I think is taking place within the administration right now. Um, it, it you know officially speaking, so to speak, the United States presence is there in eastern Syria to conduct. The war against ISIS, which, as we uh, know, is now reaching its final stages, but there is a sense in which many within the administration—I think, perhaps most importantly, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, also National Security Advisor John Bolton—you know—who are interested in a region-wide strategy of pushback against Iran, there is a sense in which the people around those uh, those officials. Uh, are interested in a way in kind of folding the Syria policy into that larger anti-Iran policy. As you correctly pointed out, the United States and its Kurdish allies currently uh, own effectively around 30% of Syria east of the Euphrates. It's the mineral and resource-rich part of Syria, around 80% of Syria's oil and gas reserves are located in that area. It's also a geographically uh, uh, place of strategic importance because what it does by existing is it kind of blocks the way for the contiguous area of control that the Iranians, as we mentioned a moment ago, want to try to build through Syria. So it's an important place both economically and also strategically, which means that from that point of view, there is an interest in the United States maintaining the relatively small, but notable uh, presence that it has in eastern Syria, which includes around 2,000 forces personnel, uh, I think eight bases, and two uh, landing uh, landing strips, two air bases, uh, which the Americans have constructed. There is an interest in maintaining those as part of the broader effort against uh, Iran. As it currently looks, or it's hard to know, the tendency in the administration appears to be right now towards staying in Syria. Uh, As somebody who certainly supports the broader goal of a U.S.-led push back against Iran region-wide. I'm certainly very much in favor of that. I was actually in that area of Syria just last week. I got back four days ago. And, you know, there's a lot of concern there also as to are the Americans staying, are the Americans going. I certainly hope, along with the Kurdish officials that I was speaking to last week, that the United States does want to stay in that area. I think it's of uh, real importance.
0: This is a great way to segue into my last question regarding your latest book, Days of the Fall, <laughs> a Reporters' Journey in the Syria and Iraq Wars. You returned from Syria four days ago. What are you seeing? What are you hearing? What's the attitude of people on the ground that you uh, mentioned just now in your, in your previous answer? Is there hope for a future Syria? Is, is there going to be a balkanization of that country? What, what do you think is going to happen, and, and what's your general impression of, of how people feel?
5: Well, I think right now, first of all, people are very war-weary, uh, war right? Eight years of war, a terrible war in which more than half a million people have been killed. This has been, you know, a, a hurricane that has hit Syria and has affected every single individual, every single family in that country. So first of all, there's an enormous weariness, I think, felt by people probably on all sides of the, of the various lines in the country. Secondly, there is concern among the Kurds because there is a sense that the regime, Iranians and Russians, right now feel the wind in their sails, have a sense of victory, have a sense of arrogance, have a sense of their their juggernauts kind of rolling across everywhere, and they genuinely fear the possibility of the regime's return to eastern Syria in the event that the Americans uh, should leave. So there's real concern and trepidation about that. You know, this is a very, very brutal regime. You know, ISIS has, has maintained, has sort of acquired the image of a dreadful and barbaric force and certainly justifiably the Assad regime ideologically is different in terms of practice it's no better it's a murderous regime so I think there's real concern there among many people and many layers of society at the possibility that the regime uh, may return having said that as long as the United States is there underwriting so to speak through air cover and, and a limited military presence the existence of that enclave, the regime and the Iranians wouldn't dare put a single boot across the Euphrates River. So uh, there's a good chance that won't happen, but there's certainly that's much of the talk that I encountered in that part of Syria over the last week was focusing very much on that subject.
0: We've got one minute left. Can you tell us about your and Seth Frantzman and Iman Jawadat Tamimi's new initiative, MECRA? Uh, Absolutely. really
5: Center for Reporting and Analysis is an attempt to uh, combine the reporting that we've been doing over the last six years in the region with the close analysis of processes and to, to make possible a platform for a lot of the sort of local regional voices and regional stories that we come across in Iraq and in Syria and elsewhere that don't always get out there and that we think are vital for Western publics to know and, indeed, for Western policymakers to be aware of as well. So it's a platform, it's a new platform to get out a lot of information and a lot of analysis on the Middle East at a time when we believe it is uh, is sorely needed.
0: And what's the website?
5: Uh, It's MideastCenter.org.
0: Jonathan, thank you very much for joining us this morning.
5: Thanks for having me, Greg. Have a nice day.
0: And back, we're going to have Jim Hansen from the Security Studies Group covering uh, the latest in the Israeli-Iranian developments, a little bit more on his new organization, and more on the Middle East Forum on WWDB, 860 AM. Fascism was a danger to American interests in the early 20th century. Communism in the last half of that century. And in the 21st century, we find our new ideological enemy, Islamism. Islamist Watch argues that violence is not the only or even the best way to apply Islamist ideas in Western liberal democracies. Islamist Watch monitors and exposes the growing influence of non-violent radical Islamist groups in the West while empowering moderate Muslims. Radical Islam is the problem. Mainstream Islam is the solution. Read more at www.islamist-watch.org. Or check us out on Twitter, at IslamistWatch. Introducing the YMCA.
6: What, you already know the Y? Or so you think. Sure, you know the Y for a swim, a workout, even a game of hoops. But did you know we're more than that? We're a cause. When you take your jump shot at the Y, someone else is getting job training. Take a cardio class while kids are in an after-school enrichment program. Practice your downward facing dog as a teen practices her leadership skills. That's the why. We work with people no matter their age, income, or background and give them the opportunity to learn, grow, and thrive, all with one simple goal in mind to strengthen our community. And we've got so much more that does just that. So while you might think of the why as that place for lifting weights, we're also about lifting entire communities. Introducing the why. We're so much more than a place. We're a cause. Visit ymca.net slash more.
0: Welcome back to the Middle East Forum on WWDB 860 AM radio. I'm really glad that we've been able to speak about the problem dealing with the public discussion of Islam in Europe, the new harbinger of a revitalized Iran, especially in the wake of their violent statements against the United States. And also understanding from Dr. Jonathan Spire the latest going on in Syria, especially a post-rebellion conflict Syria and now a game of chess that's going on between Russia, Syria, the United States, Iran, and the other actors that are active in that country. But my next guest is going to bring us a little bit closer to home. Jim Hansen is the president of the Security Studies Group. He previously served in the U.S. Army Special Forces, and he has a lot of stories to tell about that, and conducted counterterrorism, counterinsurgency, as well as diplomatic, intelligence, and humanitarian operations in more than a dozen countries. He's the author of Cut Down the Black Flag, A Plan to Defeat the Islamic State. And I think, Jim, that uh, the administration may have implemented in your administration your, your, your recommendations. Welcome to the program.
7: Uh, good to be with you, Greg.
0: Jim, can you tell us a little bit about your group?
7: Yeah, well, Security Studies Group is a kind of new take on a think tank. I guess there's been a a lot of uh, very smart people writing very important papers that mostly their friends and their colleagues are the only ones who read. And so what we've done with Security Studies Group is we try to take those same uh, important issues, especially ones that have kind of been stuck in a rut for a while, And bring them back into the public sphere again and and get new ideas in play. You know, get some provocative thoughts about it. Get some new ways to deal with entrenched problems. And, uh, hopefully that, uh, that spurs debate and and can get some of these things moving the right direction.
0: And speaking about entrenched problems, one that has, uh, in one way or another blessed or plagued U.S. presidents since 1948 has been the Israeli-Arab conflict. Israel, arguably one of the most stalwart and reliable allies of the United States in the Middle East, if not the rest of the world, has had this Palestinian bug for the past 51 years, if we can go back to 1948, for the past 70 years. What can you tell us about President Trump's strategy regarding the Israel-Palestinian conflict?
7: You know, I I guess, like you said, every president has faced this problem, and every president pretty much has, has taken a run at trying to fix it. Uh, President Trump is no different. He's going to, to make an effort at this, and I think he has, uh, in his own mind and probably demonstrably, a lot of differences uh, from the other folks who have done this. He is the art of the deal deal maker. So, um, it, I don't know that in in something as you know a seventy year problem like this that that is going to be any kind of magic bullet. And, and I think they're, they're at least cognizant of the fact that this is the probably the most difficult forward policy issue uh, of our lifetimes. And, but they're going to make a run at it, and I think it, it kind of feels like almost the last chance for the Palestinians to
0: come to the table, and we'll see if they do. So let's play this out a little bit. President Trump mm-hmm. offers the best offer the Palestinians ever gotten. Israel accepts it. The Palestinians reject it. What does President Trump do next?
7: Yeah, that's the uh the question. And and I think honestly, I think that's a fair look at what's likely to happen because history bears that out. You know, every time there has been a a good offer on the table, the Palestinians have rejected it or they've taken it and then failed to live up to their their end of it. So I don't know why, you know, in their minds, what has changed that would make that different this time. Uh we'll see, but if that plays out as you say, the next step is not likely to be pleasant for them. I think President Trump doesn't like to let problems linger. So whereas some other presidents have been comfortable with a peace process that was going to go on, I think he may decide then to move to some sort of enforced security arrangement that is going to be, uh, uh, in that case, much more favorable to Israel. And I, I think the Palestinians may, again, miss an opportunity. By missing an opportunity.
0: <laughs> well, I think that if you look at the administration's actions over the past 18 months, it has been not just treating the Israeli Palestinian track as one, like many other previous administrations have, but the U.S. has dealt with its bilateral relationship with the United States and Israel separate from the Israeli Palestinian conflict moving the embassy to Jerusalem, increasing defense aid, increasing defense cooperation, opening up the first American base in Israel in the south of the country, in addition to an x radar system they already have active down there in an area called Ramat Chovav. But as it deals with the Palestinians, I also think that the president has held them to account whether it's bringing up the amount of uh, of of wicked words that their UN ambassador has used or their foreign minister has used and holding them to account for that in international institutions cutting the amount of aid which has gone to the Palestine refugees which we're about I I think we're we're on the precipice right now of a major report coming out from the State Department recognizing that there's only 20 or 30,000 refugees not the 5.3 million that they encounter and the president has already begun the actions of holding the Palestinians to account so I'm very happy with the administration's actions on this. I just hope that they won't be under the illusion that a peace plan will be accepted by any Palestinian partner that right now doesn't exist. Moving to another topic. You know, yeah. Okay. Jim, you want to say something?
7: Just one thing. I think you, you pointed out the biggest difference is that the idea that the, the Palestinian Israeli state issue had to be resolved before we could move on to other more important security issues. And I think severing that linkage, as it was always known uh, was a major move in the correct direction. Those are separate things. They can't be tied together. And now we have a chance to work on some of the other more important things.
0: We heard earlier in the broadcast that Iran is on the front of the radar of the uh, of the administration right now, especially with their new rollout of the strategy. But one of the areas that I think some of my listeners might really want to understand is how does Iran's more uh, nascent actions in Syria and their, and their recent um, – the calamity that they had after they tried to strike Israeli positions in the Golan Heights, portend for Israel. What kind of assistance is the U.S. going to provide Israel should there be an Israel-Iran war?
7: Yeah, and that is unfortunately a legitimate concern. You know, the, the Iranians have been reinforcing uh, all of their proxies in Syria in a major way. I mean, large numbers of, of troops, the the majority of troops fighting have been in in Syria. Have been Iranian supported either through, you know, direct support of the Assad regime or moving in Hezbollah proxies or their other uh, Shia militias that they've recruited uh, across the country. And they've been building infrastructure and they've been pushing missiles in. And in the end, you know, Syria does cement their land bridge. To the Mediterranean, which is a, a horrifying concept if they can manage that. But it also puts them right on, you know, the, the area in, in the southwest um, that allows them to menace Israel directly. And Israel won't, won't tolerate that and should not tolerate it and doesn't have to tolerate that. So I think the, the idea that the U.S. either can stand by and watch that and, and the inevitable will be Israel defending itself with, with every right of self-defense or we can try to avoid that by pushing back in, in many ways against uh, Iran and their proxies. And I think that needs to be the U.S. policy. How that plays out, we'll have to see.
0: All right, and Jim, we have a minute left. What else can you tell us about the U.S.'s strategy for the rest of 2018 in the Middle East? What are the two or three issues we really should be focusing on?
7: You know, I think the the idea that there now is a burgeoning counter-Iran coalition that uh, has been almost a, a rapprochement between Israel and some of the Arab states that were always their enemies, you know I think that that delinkage of the Palestinian issue with the larger Iranian threat in the region makes it possible to have uh, a a coalition that realizes the true threat Iran faces or you know portends for all of them in the region and consequently better relations between the Saudis and the Emiratis, and the Israelis. And I think uh, with the U.S. as part of that partnership as well, I think that's good for everybody. And I hope that continues because there's no you know if we can stop those scraps, then maybe at some point we can get to a, a greater security for
0: everybody. Jim, thank you for joining the Middle East Forum in the morning.
7: Thanks, Greg. It was
0: fun. And to all my listeners out there, I think that this has been a successful first broadcast and some of the information that you're going to be able to find in the weeks and months ahead coming from our program. Don't just include our analysis of what's going on in the Middle East, but also how those issues affect you here at home. Our projects, whether it be Campus Watch, Islamist Watch, the Israel Victory Project, the Legal Project, all which may seem nebulous in nature just because of their titles, will all be highlighted on this program. And if you're interested in hearing more about the Middle East Forum or having a question that you want me to ask or analyze on the program, you can write to us at info, I-N-F-O, at meforum.org. Now, moving beyond that, I'd like to give you a little preview of next week's show. We're going to be discussing what's happening when we're going back to school. All of your students, all of you who are students in American colleges and universities, anyone who might be uh, having a child that's going to an American college or university, should know about Not just one thing regarding Islamist infiltration of our universities and of our colleges, but also dealing with Islamist infiltration of our secondary schools. We're going to have Winfield Myers on the program, director of Campus Watch, Sam Westrop, director of Islamist Watch, and also a few other guests. And just in terms of this being the last minute of the first program that we've done, I want to thank everybody who supported us on the road here, our production assistant, Delaney Jancic, our executive liaison, Lisa Barbunis Reynolds, and also a few of the other staff at MEF who were able to start this. So in one way or another, I just hope that you'll be joining us next week on Wednesday at 10, from 10 to 11 a.m. on the Middle East Forum, WWDB 860 a.m. Thank you.